0: for the next couple of weeks under the title of There's No Place Like Home. There's no place like home. You don't have to click your heels together to say that, but just I do want you to join with me. There is no place like home. Now, if I say that to you, what's home to you? What comes to mind? What's home to you? Well, by the time we're done in the next few weeks, I hope you will translate some of those concepts and feelings of home from an address and family into this location. And I think you'll see why as we study through the next few weeks these passages. Look at this quote from Mark Driscoll and Jerry Brashears from their book Vintage Church. They say, if you walk into various churches and ask the people who comprise the church what the word church means, the odds are that you will get either a blank stare or a series of conflicting definitions. Sadly, this is even true from their pastors. In preparing for this book, I asked various pastors of some of America's largest churches, godly men, and dear friends, if they have a working definition of the church. And not one of them did. They confessed They were giving their lives to building something for which they did not even have a clear definition. Their response was not surprising because for much of the history of the church, the definition of church has simply been assumed. Now, I can remember a couple years ago, I guess, when this book came out, reading the book and thinking, okay, that's, boy, that's a little over the top. I got, you got to be kidding me. I mean, is that really what happened? These pastors didn't come up with a definition. So immediately I put myself in the crosshairs of, okay, if you were put on the spot, what would your working definition of the church be? And I thought for a second and what immediately came to mind is the verses that we're looking at today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Let's look there together. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Lord, thank you for your word and for truth that affects our souls, that affects the way we live, it affects how we feel about our day-to-day business upon this earth. Lord, hidden in your word... And I do believe that's accurate, Lord, hidden in your word, hidden from those whose hearts are not toward you, hidden from those who would not seek you with all their hearts, are truths awaiting us to discover the richness. And so, Lord, as we open this word today, thank you for those truths. Holy Spirit, you ultimately are the one who must lead us into those truths. And so we submit ourselves to you Bring your influence into our lives and let us see. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me, let me glance at a little larger context. It's always good when we're looking at bits and pieces of scripture to make sure we're being true to the bigger picture that's around them. If we kept reading in this passage, you'd immediately go back to Peter's discussion on the issue of holiness the issue of how people live out their lives. So he's, he's saying something right here, and he's going back to a topic that he began earlier. If you look back in chapter 1, uh, verse 14, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, if you just pick up verse 11, he's back in that place again discussing this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable. And then he goes on and explains that they're going to be watching and observing your good deeds so that they may glorify God as they observe your life. So he's transitioning a bit into a discussion of conduct among the gentiles. What what's our life supposed to live like? What are we supposed to sound like? smell like, and people get around the church, the people of God. What's the lifestyle supposed to be like? And he gets very practical. We'll see as we move through the next uh, couple of months as we study being subject to governments. He's going to address that issue. He's going to address the issue of wives and husbands and their relationship with each other and wives being subject to their husbands and husbands, how they are to care for their wives. That's going to say something about God to the world. He's going to address slaves and masters. And we don't have that scenario in our culture that was very prevalent there. Whereas people who were in a a position of being owned by another person, and he was addressing for them, here's how you glorify God in that situation. And then he moves into the church and starts talking about, again, brotherly love that we saw earlier. Being united together. Being humble toward one another. Submitting to leaders in the church. So that's where this is headed. But before we get there, he covers something and he highlights something. It really began several verses back, all the way back in chapter 1. But let me just grab some thought here from verse 4. Because he transitions in verse 4 into this section. And he highlights something about the audience of people that he's addressing. Look in verse 4. As you come to him, so he's assuming this is a group of people that have come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when we get to this part of the the, the letter, what you come in contact with is a description of the audience. You are living stones. You are a spiritual household. You are a priesthood to offer sacrifices. And he comes back to that language again here in verse 9 and highlights you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. So here's what Peter wanted to cover before he moves into the rest of the book that was vital for him. And I wrote this statement down. I think it captures what he's trying to accomplish. In order to live the rest of the epistle. Peter first establishes an understanding of who we are that are called to live this way. Who is this audience that's called to live out all these things that are about to be said to them? Who is this audience that's called to live that way? Now, I'm going to slow us down here in these passages for the next few weeks. It's almost like as we're, we're driving through 1 Peter, we've just hit a school zone. And we're going to, we're going to slow down in these, in these two verses And take a few weeks to look at them. If I was writing a commentary, I wouldn't do this. Uh, If I was teaching in a seminary, I wouldn't do this. But when we study a book of the Bible together, we study it as a collection of people, as a church. So we're not just trying to move through a Bible study. We're trying to acquire it for us in this season of who we are as a church right now. And there's some issues about being the people of God that these verses are going to help us with that I want to encourage you to listen as though we as a church need to hear this. Now that's an obvious thing to say, right? I mean, if the Bible says it, don't we always need to hear what the, what the Bible says? Yes, we do. But how many of you know already me just telling you that it's going to make you listen to this verse differently? Every page of the Bible is filled with stuff that we need. But there are times and seasons where, where we're needing to acquire some things for right now where we're living and how we're living. And there's a dynamic, I believe, in the church that we need to hear some things that are here in this passage for us as Lakeview Christian Center in the year 2011 and what God wants to do and accomplish in our midst. So I'm asking you to listen Not just from the standpoint, I think this is important as well, not just from the standpoint of how does this relate to where you are individually. Because one of the challenges I think that we're going to bump into, and we'll cover this more next week, is, you know, when I say there's no place like home, to some extent, everybody's mind leaves the building and you go home to what you call home. But when you read this passage... And when you read the New Testament, there is a factor that is as real as your home address is this right here is home. In a spiritual way, you're called brothers and sisters. There's a father present. There's relationship dynamics. There's leadership components. And the Bible is going to use the terminology. This is, you're a spiritual house. There's a family dimension here. I think what the church suffers from is we fail to make this place home. We fail to make it feel like home. For even some of the most committed folks in the church, we may be committed to something, but we may be leaving out the dynamic that God intends for this place to be a home for people. People being brought in here as members of a home. They find their home here. You know, be appropriate for us spiritually to not just say, "Hey, welcome to church today." Great to have you guys. It'll be appropriate for us to stand at the front door and say, "Welcome home." And you know, I don't mean this building. You know, I, I, right? This building is just a place for us to gather. It's kind of like the dining room table. You know, it doesn't make your, that doesn't define your family. But there's a there's a component of gathering your family together and being together, and that's what we do here on a Sunday. So what I hope we'll hear as we move through this is a greater understanding of what the church was intended to be and what each of us are called to play in its in its function. Now look at, look at the language that's here because I'm going to really focus us in on a f- just very few dynamics today. You are, all right, now this is a definition. This is what you are. Right, so this is the defining moment in scripture for a believer. You are these things. You are a chosen race. Some of your translations may say a chosen generation. It's the Greek word genos. And it has to do with a family, a people, a generation, a race of people. You are chosen, so there's a uniqueness about who you are set amongst all the other races. You are a special chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. All right, now we're into a religious function that for these folks would have been understood in light of the Old Testament. We'll cover more of that next week. You are a holy nation. The word holy there is the word hagios. It's that set apart dimension. It's a, you are a nation set apart from other nations and you are a people for his own possession. Now remember, Matt taught a few weeks ago about this love that we're to have for one another, this brotherly love, this earnestness toward one another. And, and Peter's going to cover that same ground in a few places. What Peter uses right here takes a wrecking ball to common relational divisiveness here. If you will, he is, he is about as socially, politically incorrect as you can get because he's going to talk about race, religion, and nationality all in one passage. He hits all of them. He talks about the fact that we are together as a particular race. And in their day, there would have been huge racial tensions all around them. Their church would have had a huge plurality and a variety of people. There would have been Jews and Gentiles who had been taught Mistaught how to treat one another, how to see one another, what views to have from an early age, from childhood. There would have been racial tensions, and now these folks are sitting in church together. They're walking together in the purpose of God, and Peter's having to address them. You're a chosen race, every one of you together collected into one race. You are a royal priesthood. Okay, now he's into the realm of religion. And from all the different varieties of religion that we all are made up from, he puts us all together and says, you're all the same thing. You're all a royal priesthood. And we'll look at what that means next week. You're a holy nation. From all the nations that you come from, you're a holy nation. Right, I mean, you know something about nationalities. If you watch the Olympics you got some loyalties going on in the dynamics of nationality. There's something about our background we feel a certain way about it. Well, Peter takes a wrecking ball to all of that. He says, wherever you've come from, whatever your background is, it's all new. And you're all the same. And you're all together. Can I tell you what the obvious ramifications for us in the year 2011 is in that category? How many of you guys are from New Orleans? How many of you recognize you grew up in a very racially charged environment? How many of you recognize that? That you got around ideas that addressed differences in the natural realm, the color of skin, and more than that, the way of life associated with the color of skin. You've been around that. And you'd be very naive to think that that hasn't rubbed off on you. I know we look around this morning, see a lot of white faces. I don't see a lot of black faces. Right? You know why? Because in this culture, in this New Orleans culture, black and white don't mix, they're just too different. The way of life is too different. Remember, I think I've told this story before. I can remember flying from back from somewhere on a plane, and Peter and I were together, and we were talking. Two guys behind us were overhearing our conversation, and uh, it was the former police chief of New Orleans and one of his assistants. And so he asked us about the church, and you know, asked us some questions. You know, figured out eventually that we were pastors, and asked some questions about the church. And both of these guys were black, asking two white guys, so, how many black people you got in your church? Now, I don't know what answer he was expecting me to give. Uh, My answer was, not enough. Not nearly enough. I said, we've got a handful, but not nearly enough. And then I turned the question on him. I said, so how many white people you got in your church? And he looked at his friend and said, oh, he got me. He said, we don't have any, not a one. <laughs> See, because black and white in our natural fallen culture don't mix. you understand? Peter takes a wrecking ball to that. And he says, you know what? I don't care what color your skin is. You are a chosen race of people. And you have that in common. Let me tell you something. You've got more in common. You've got more in common with a believer who is from the tribal areas of Africa, who speaks a different language than you do, who's black, whose world is totally different in the natural than you are, but he's born again and you're born again. You've got more in common with him. Then you do somebody who lives in the suburbs with you, who's from America, who's white, makes the same amount of money, speaks your language, and loves the New Orleans saints. (laughs) Now let me ask you this. Do you feel that way? Because I do. When I go to another country and interact with somebody there, the second I know that that person is a believer, I instantly feel something toward them. And I and I expect that they feel that toward me, even though we've never met, and their culture is different, and they live quite differently than the way that I live. I know that I have more in common with that person than I do with the people in the natural world that I've got a lot in common with. You're a chosen race. You're family. That's a family word in the Greek. So no matter what background we come from, we have received of the lineage of Christ now and have become the people of God. You, you cannot look across this audience the same way you did because of how your mom and them taught you to think and relate to people, for whatever reason. got black and white issues. got nationality issues. Your people, and Americans, talk a certain way about Mexicans. You've gotten around that. You're a holy nation. Don't be more eager to be an American than you are to be a member of this holy nation, to be defined by this holy nation. Listen, I'm grateful that I, I live in a country that affords so much freedoms and ways of life. But when I read this book, this book defines me. Keith, you are this. You are a holy nation. I might be an American in the natural, but I won't be getting into heaven because I'm white or because I'm an American or because of anything else. I'm only getting into heaven because I'm a member of a holy nation. That matters more than anything else. So what you see in this passage, it just wrecks everything here, and it puts us in a place to walk. Now, listen, because I think one of the issues that we're going to need to wrestle through here, and I'm going to need to move along, um, is we don't think this way in the household of God. If you're more in touch with racial tensions and issues, and I, listen, I'm telling you whether you're black or whether you're white, because they're on both sides. If you're more in touch with that, then you are what we share together In our background spiritually and in our mission together, I would say, I would dare say that across the board in your life, you are not kingdom-minded enough. You are natural-minded. You look at people through the lens of what the scriptures tell you not to do. Even though we know Christ in the flesh, we know him that way no longer. Therefore, we recognize no man according to the flesh. There's a more significant work. I need to lift my eyes up and see this is my family in this room today by what God has done. That will make me be different here, I think, on a Sunday morning or during the week. I very much think that. But is everybody in the family? There's there's some language here. I want you to notice it. It's, It's an inclusive, exclusive nature of this passage Now, we cannot overlook that, right? You are, each one of these things, you are a chosen race, right? So immediately in your mind you construct there's a race amongst many races, right? And you're a chosen one. So immediately you've got inclusiveness and exclusiveness just by that passage. You are a royal priesthood. You remember the concept of the priesthood? Those who descended from Aaron had the right to approach God uniquely, and no one else did. God created a priesthood where there was inclusiveness and exclusiveness by nature. God turns around now and says, you are a priesthood. So all of you have access, included access. However, not all do. So the very language here is inclusive and exclusive. It starts off with this, but you, but you. By contrast, you are something different than those who have been being discussed so far. You, you've got to notice this kind of language in Scripture because it carries big, weighty implications. But you are this. Can anybody just pick the Bible up and read, start reading in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and when they're done, walk away concluding, I'm a chosen race. I'm a royal priesthood. I just read it in the Bible. It just told me that. Can anybody read the Bible that way? Is the Bible inviting everyone just to pick up and read it that way? No, it's not. Because there's a group who this is true of backed right up against a group that it is not true of. There are those who are included in this passage and there are those who are excluded, who are not a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Verse Seven through eight, we learn about people who do not believe. Those in this passage. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. Okay, there's another group here in this section. It's a group of people who don't believe. For them, this stone of stumbling is a rock of offense. They are those who are offended by Christ. They have not believed and submitted their lives to him. They stumble because they disobey. They are those who disobey the word of God. And they were destined to do so. And so there's a collection of people. You keep reading in verse 12. We get this admonition to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of against you, they may see your good works. Okay, do you you see the language that's in the Bible here? I, I need you to see it with me. Can you nod your head and tell me you're seeing this? Because it's offensive, If there's one issue that people take issue with God, it's that he would dare to be exclusive about anything he does. It's it seems, especially in a democratic society, it seems wrong on his part. How can God have one group that's shown particular favor and another group that's not shown that? But whether I like the idea or not, I'm not ready to sell you on whether you like it or not. Do you at least see it? There are two groups in this passage. One is having some really cool stuff said about them, and the other is not. Now, when we read the Bible, are we reading the Bible the way it was meant to be read? It's not a generalized book. Anybody can pick it up and read it however they decide to read it. It's not. It's a book that was written a certain way. In the introduction to biblical interpretation, the authors say, in essence, the Bible is God's written revelation to his people. It records in human words what God has mandated for them. Do you realize that when you read the Bible? That's what you're reading. 1 Peter chapter 1 started off. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect exiles. He is addressing his letter to a particular group. It is not an all-inclusive letter. It's not trying to include everybody on the planet in it. It is an exclusive letter. Now, now listen, this is an issue, and it is a challenge for people to buy into this. The, there's an organization called the Pew Forum who does research in morality and religious issues. Here's what they've discovered 70% of Americans believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Many religions. Doesn't have to be Christianity, doesn't have to be centered on Christ. Many religions can lead to eternal life. 57% of evangelicals believe that. 83% of mainline churches believe that. 79% of Catholics believe that. It's uncomfortable to believe otherwise. It is. And so there's an appeal to thinking that God is just very broad minded and non exclusive. Matter of fact, this past week there has been a firestorm amongst evangelicals, uh, book writers in particular, and those who blog. Give you some thought here that maybe you don't follow. This is a, a blog written by a man named Scott McKnight, who's an author and professor at North Park University and actually has a pretty impressive background, written a number of books. He says this, whether evangelicalism was paying attention or not, it is now. Universalism, or at least the prospect of it, is the single most significant issue running through the undercurrent of evangelicalism today. Universalism has a couple of different streams to it, but it's basically the idea that in the end, everybody ends up in heaven. Roughly speaking. There's a little room for some different means of getting there in universalism. But he's saying this is a big topic. This all became clear Saturday, just past Saturday, when some some decided to accuse Rob Bell of universalism on the basis of excerpts of his book that's soon to be released. His book's titled Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. And on the basis of a video and the book's description at Harper One, the publisher. So while this new story is about Rob, I want, to be, I want to contend it is even more about the significance of universalism. Now, he's a professor. He goes on and says this. My own estimation is that somewhere near 75% of my students, many, if not most of them, nurtured in the church are more or less universalists. They believe in Jesus and see themselves as Christians but don't find significant problems in God saving Muslims and Buddhists or anyone else on the basis of how God makes such decisions. The Baylor study of religion, and if my memory is correct, asked a question or two that reveals that an increasing number of American evangelical Christians think the majority of humans will be saved. That's the issue, and Rob Bell had the moxie to write a book about it. He's rattled cages with his promo video, and he will undoubtedly stir the waters in the book. Now, let me read you his promo video, but let me tell you who Rob Bell is just for a second. Right, this is how the book informs uh, of, a, of this author. Fans flock to his Facebook page. His NUMA videos have been viewed by millions, and his Sunday sermons are attended by 10,000 parishioners, with a downloadable podcast reaching 50,000 more. An electrifying, unconventional pastor whom Time Magazine calls a singular rock star in the church world. Rob Bell is the most vibrant, central religious leader of the millennial generation. Now, in his book, Love Wins... uh, Bell addresses one of the most controversial issues of faith, the afterlife, arguing that a loving God would never sentence human souls to eternal suffering. With searing insight, Bell puts hell on trial, and his message is decidedly optimistic. Eternal life doesn't start when we die. It starts right now, and ultimately, love wins. Now, Rob did a a video, and he does that frequently, and promotes his book, and it's a very provocative video. And let me just read you the transcript of the video. He says, several years ago, we had an art show at our church, and people brought in all kinds of sculptures and paintings, and we put them on display. There was this one piece that had a quote from Gandhi in it, and lots of people found this piece compelling. They'd stop and sort of stare at it and take it in and reflect on it, but not everybody found it compelling. Somewhere in the course of the art show, somebody attached a handwritten note to the piece, and on the note they had written, Reality check, he's in hell. Gandhi's in hell? He is? And someone knows this for sure and felt the need to let the rest of us know? Will only a few select people make it to heaven? And will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? And If that's the case, how do you become one of the few? Is it what you believe or what you say or what you do or who you know Or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated or baptized or take a class or converted or being born again? How does one become one of these few? And then there is the question behind the questions, the real question. What is God like? Because millions and millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And so what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. But what kind of God is that? That we would need to be rescued from this God. How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news? This is why lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian life. They they see it as an endless list of absurdities and inconsistencies. And they say, why would I ever want to be part of that? See, what we believe about heaven and hell is incredibly important because it exposes what we believe about who God is and what God is like. What you discover in the Bible is so surprising, unexpected, and beautiful that whatever we've been told or taught, the good news is actually better than that. Better than we could ever imagine. The good news is that love wins. This is a very popular author. He will sell a large number of books. See, there is an idea about inclusiveness that we come to the Bible and we're, we're just uncomfortable with the idea that God would be exclusive and he would only include some uniquely. Now, let, me, let me just say this. Most of you won't be interested in, in that book, and for that, I'm glad. Um, but you, you, you might remember, we, we did a series in the summer and into the fall on introducing God. Remember the series? We took about three weeks on one characteristic of God, love. I remember opening that part of the series up, explaining how that aspect of God is very critical for us to look at because it gets imposed as the controlling aspect of who we're going to let God be. God, the Bible says it. God is love. right? so... Love wins is taking an aspect of who God is and forcing him to be only that aspect. What if I wrote a book that says righteousness wins? Or justice wins? Or jealousy wins? Because the Bible says God is all those things as well. So we, we can't sort of take this one dimension of God, impose it on God, strip him of everything else that we know of him to be, And come up with our theology of who God is. God does have an exclusive nature about himself. That's in this passage. I'm not making it up. It's just there. But you, as opposed to those, but you are something different. To impose all inclusiveness on the Bible is to make a huge mistake. And I'm just going to run through five quick reasons here for us as to why that's a huge mistake. Number one. It ignores the emphatic need for reconciliation between God and man that exists in Scripture. The reason why there's an inclusiveness and exclusiveness is because man is in the dire need of being restored to God from a position that is not a flattering position, right? You can look in these verses quickly with me. Ephesians chapter 2. I don't want to take for granted that these are verses that we're familiar with. I know many are, but... These might not be popular verses in some circles. Ephesians chapter 2, describing people, those who have now come to Christ, Paul says, And you, verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit Right, so, so there's an exclusion there, isn't there? Those who were dead were characterized by a certain lifestyle and more serious, not only were they following the course of this world and seeking the passions of the flesh, they were labeled children of wrath. Where, where does this wrath word fit into the grand scheme of things? Children of wrath? It means that before we were in Christ, we were the objects of wrath. Whose wrath were we the objects of? God's wrath. Right. Romans chapter 5. Turn back just a few books there. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. Right? Now, Rob Bell in his video makes that sound absurd. It's not like, what kind of God is this that you've got to be saved from him? Well, it's the God of the Bible. Now, listen, this is, the, this is the giant mistake, the giant mistake that gets made here, is when we as human beings figure out our own definitions for things like love, and then we turn to God and we oppose them on him. We say, God, you love like we love, and there's no way I would love like that. So there's no way you can love like that. Probably the most important thing in introducing God was to remember that, remember that word we took a week on? Kadash? God is holy. He's not your next door neighbor. He doesn't descend from one of us. He is different and he is perfect in all that he is. So be careful that you don't take some man-conceived small idea and impose it on the eternal, enormous, perfect God and say, God, you can't be like that. Now, there's something very right about a God who loves the way God loves and who is also wrathful as well. It's right. As a matter of fact, can I say this? You know, some of us struggle with that. We're going to, for those of us who are included, who are in Christ, we're going to stand around the throne of God, and we're never going to run out of gas celebrating who God is. All of who God is, we will embrace and enjoy and honor him. But this is a huge passage here. We were justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by God from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Do you hear the inclusiveness and exclusiveness there? We are now reconciled. At one point, we were not. We were not always on good terms with God. And the Bible speaks of a a necessity. Be restored to God. That's the heart of the gospel is to be restored to him, to be reconciled to God. As a matter of fact, it's our mission to appeal to those who are excluded from, to become included in the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If the Bible is all-inclusive and God is all-inclusive, well, it ignores the emphatic need for reconciliation between God and man. Second, it eliminates the gospel-defining moment of new birth. Receiving of resurrection life, it ignores that the Bible doesn't ignore that. The Bible makes that a key central figure for our lives. Listen, I, I grew up religious. I grew up going to church. Grew up living and believing in certain moral dynamics. I grew up believing in a God whose Son came. To, I grew up believing a lot of those things. I lived a huge portion of my religious life never knowing I needed to be born again. Remember the story of Nicodemus, the man who's a Pharisee? He's a teacher of the nation of Israel in the New Testament. He's probably a decent man, hardworking guy. He seems to care about people. Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel. And he comes to Jesus and he highlights the fact that you're a good teacher. You must have come from heaven. And Jesus cuts him off almost mid-sentence and says, Nicodemus, Unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. Now that thrusts this dynamic of being born again into not some option among many possibilities, but the only way for you and I to be right with God is to be born again. When I I meet Nicodemus, you know, Jesus does does not say this to him, hey, Nicodemus. You know, you're you're a, you're a pretty good guy. I mean, you know, Nicodemus, you're, you're close, man. You're so far along. I don't know, 70% there. You just need like a little 30% adjustment in some of these areas of your life. You just need to begin to think a little differently here and practice a little bit differently there. Maybe get around people this way and, and say these words and maybe read this book. Just improve some things in your life, man, and you're going to make it. Okay, what grade would you give Nicodemus in his I'm going to heaven, great. Jesus gives him a zero. Why, because he's the most immoral man you could find? No. More than likely, he was not a very immoral man. Because for anyone to be in a relationship with God, you must be born again. What if you're not born again? Well, then you are excluded from a relationship with God. I know, I know every time I say that, somebody is probably going, oh, dude, man, you're sending electricity through my veins when you say that. I, can I just ask you, can I just appeal to you, let the Bible have a say-so in this matter. Jesus told someone, you must be born again, Nicodemus, you got no shot, man, unless you are born again. Inclusiveness, point number three it turns the Bible into a manual of morality rather than a means of redemption and restoration. If God is all-inclusive, then the Bible becomes a manual for morality. Listen to this thought from my favorite theological website, (laughs) oprah.com. This article written by one of the folks in the radio division says, many people try to follow the Ten Commandments, rules from the Bible such as thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Journalist and author A.J. Jacobs, on the other hand, set out on a mission to see what would happen if he lived his life according to every single rule in the good book. He talks with Gail about his findings, which he recounts in his book, The Year of Living Biblically. One man's humble quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible. To begin his quest, A.J. says he read the entire Bible cover to cover and noted over 700 rules that believers are urged to follow. Though not religious himself, A.J. says he was determined to follow each guideline to the letter to see what lessons, if any, could be gleaned. He says, quote, I wanted to take it to the limit and see what I learned. See whether I I came out a better person. How many of you know that's not the purpose for this book? This is not a manual on how to become a better person, on how to be a better you. All those rules that are there, you want to talk about missing the point? They're not there so that you can do your best to keep them. They're there, as the New Testament says, as tutors to teach you to be led to Christ, the only one who could keep them all. Now, here's how you get away from this idea. What you do is you lower God's character into the realm of of tolerant about just about anything. And you say, you know what, 700 rules, you know, if I'm doing maybe half of them on half the days, I probably get a passing grade, right? Not the God of the Bible. God is Holy. You shall be holy as I am holy. And so we don't don't get to do part of the job and get acceptable to God. But there's a guy who totally missed the purpose of the Bible. How do you miss the total purpose of the Bible? Well, ignore the fact that you need to be born again. Ignore the fact that mercy needs to find your life. Ignore those facts and instead try and create some other means through which you can reach God. And now, this just becomes help. It gives me some idea. Where can I improve? Nicodemus could have been helped, right? He gets a book and it says, Nicodemus, you're most of the way there. Here's some more ideas. Try and do these now and maybe you'll make it the rest of the way. That's not what the Bible says and it's not what its intention is either. Your outline there, I said, when there's no need to come to Christ. Remember verse 4 in First Peter? You have come to Christ. There's no need to come to Christ. One never needs to explore the gospel of grace in order to understand the terms of coming to Him. There's a means of coming to Christ. It's the gospel of God's grace. But if you don't ever need to come, you just start where you are, right? If we don't begin by relocating, coming to Christ and his means of saving us or granting us entrance, then we simply pick up from where we are and we try to live a better life. How many people you know who do that? Go to some religious event and walk away with this determination about, you know what, doggone it, from now on, I'm just going gonna, gonna, to, some changes going to take place in my life. So you just start from wherever you are. If you're a wealthy person, maybe you make some changes by giving away some of your money, forming a charity, forming some organization that's going to do good to the community. And so I'm going to spend myself on improving my generosity and my care for the needs of others. But I'm not coming to Christ to abandon my hope to a Savior who paid the price of the penalty of sin. I'm just trying to self-improve based on some ideas from the Bible. It's always amazing. I remember looking at the situation going on in Mexico right now, the drug cartels and how different they are than than what was there for years and years. For years and years, the drug cartels that that ran illegal operations, they had a a code of morality that they played by. If you were a religious person, they wouldn't kill you. Uh, if, If you were a woman or child, they wouldn't kill you. But if you were a man, they might kill you. If you were a man involved in some way in the drug trade and you weren't with them, more than likely they would kill you. But they had some boundaries, some parameters that they played within. Right, so they imposed on themselves some morality. I'm not going to do that, but I will do this. Today, down the new cartels that are down there, they kill anyone. It's a very, very different mindset. See, morality comes if we decide to add something to our life. You know, if you're a suburbanite, you add certain types of morality. You grew up in New Orleans and the Lent season is coming? Listen, do you you come to Christ abandoning all hope but in him to completely forgive you of your sins and make you acceptable before God forever? Or do we go through a season where we're just going to try and self-improve a little bit? See, self-improvement is everywhere in humanity. And we don't want to abandon that idea. So we keep it and we hold on to it. Remember though, Christ never needed to come for people to practice the art and craft of personal self improvement. People all over the world adjust their morality without any acknowledgement of Christ at all. What Christ came to do was critical and different than that. Point number four, this inclusiveness Diminishes the hope we are to have in the covenant promises of God. God has made promises. They are not all-inclusive promises. They are covenant promises to his covenant people. Look at this thought related by John Stott. He says, God's promise to Abraham was, I will bless you. It came to be recognized as the essence of God's covenant with Israel. Repeated again and again in the Old Testament. I will be your God. And you shall be my people. In addition to this covenant relationship, God promised Abraham both a land and a seed, a line of descent. It may truly be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. In the Old Testament days, Israel was the promised seed and Canaan, the promised land. But the covenant included a reference to all the families of the earth and their blessing. Only now in Christ have these promises begun to be fulfilled. For Jesus Christ and his people are the true seed of Abraham. As Paul wrote to the Galatians, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. When God came to Abraham, God selected Abraham and made a covenant promise to him and his descendants. It was not an all-inclusive promise or covenant. And we find out in the New Testament, we are the recipients of that covenant. The promise that God made to Abraham, who believed in God by faith, would transfer down the lineage to us. We are the recipients of this special blessing and privilege and covenant made by God. That's how Mary, in Luke chapter 1, that's how Mary interpreted the coming of Christ into her womb. She says this, he, speaking of God, has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring Forever. What Mary knew was going on was the fulfillment of a covenant promise God made to Abraham. This is that. This unique privilege has come to us. Right, look in this passage in Ephesians 2, verse 12. Paul says, remember that you were at that time, that time in which you didn't know Christ. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Listen, do uh, do we see that Scripture gives us a revelation that there are people who are with God in the world and there are people who are without God in the world? Right now, that's the truth. Every human being falls into an included group or an excluded group. And the Bible highlights that over and over and over again. What's interesting for Paul in saying these things is he's trying to actually teach these people the opposite. He's trying to say at one point, remember, this is who you were. But now all that's been turned upside down. You are no longer separated from Christ. And you're no longer alienated from the commonwealth of God's people, Israel. You're not strangers, You're not strangers to the covenants and promises. And you have hope and you are with God in this world. That's what he was trying to say to these people. But he contrasts by saying this is who you used to be, but it's not who you are anymore. See, when you strip away the inclusiveness and the exclusive dynamic of the passage, you lose that impact, don't you? See, there's a a dimension here that these covenant promises mean something to me. When I go to live my life, they're to mean something to you. God has made promises to you. If you look up into the world and you make everything the same shade of color and you say everything is God's in exactly the same way, it doesn't teach you that. God has made special promises to you who are the descendants of Abraham by faith, who are in covenant relationship with God. God. Listen, let me tell you how this works out just in my own, my own life. Right, just think of a category. For me, I can think of categories where something is hard for me to do. Usually the hardest things for me to do have to do with overcoming me, overcoming dynamics of my own personality, my own bent, my own way of relating or doing things. And so, you know, I bump into that and nothing intimidates me more. I find nothing to be more challenging Nothing to me more depressing than bumping into me. And so, all right, this past week I'm bumping into me and and we're doing a little family devotional. It's out of Joshua and Judges. And we're studying the first couple chapters of Judges. And there's a place where Judges, if you remember where Judges is in scripture, Judges is the place where now the people of God are going in to inherit the promised land. They're going to go in and get the promises that God has given to them. So when they go in, God has made promises to them. The reason why they're going in is because God has made promises to them. God told Moses, God told Joshua, every place your foot treads, I have given to you. I will give the people in the land over to you. I will be with you. These promises are over and over and over again leading up to this moment where now they're going to go into the land. And they're going to take the land that God has promised them. Now, Now listen, There's an inclusiveness and an exclusiveness, right, because they're going to take the land from someone. Does that bother you? Because if you look up and you try and determine how God's going to relate to you and you stare at the Amorites, here's what you're going to walk away with. Well, why would I expect God to help me? Look what he did with them. Good point. But those who went in to take the land had promises from God because they were in covenant relationship with God. So they go into the land and they start conquering. And the Bible says this interesting little thing. God was with them and tribe after tribe, this one tribe defeated the people in the hill country, but the people in the plains they did not defeat because they had chariots of iron. Now, that sort of makes sense, doesn't it? People in the hill country couldn't drive chariots. You know, it's hilly. They didn't have as, as good of weaponry. So they were easier to beat. People in the plains, you know, kind of like the report of the spies. These dudes got, they've got weapons. They're going 30 miles an hour out there. They're flying and They're all around. How are we going to beat these guys? So they don't defeat the plains people because they got weapons. And how were they able to defeat the hill country? What's the one key important thing about these people going into that land? I am with you. That's why you'll win. And I'm going to give them in your hands. That's why you'll win. Now, God's not limited to, God can only beat hill people. <laughs> Even God can't beat chariots. No, no. But they assessed this based on what they thought God would be able to do. So they didn't do the hard thing. They left those people there. And actually God comes back and corrects them. He said, you've dishonored me. I told you I would give you this land. I told you I would be with you. And you have disobeyed me. Now listen, when I bump into that which is hard for me to do, do I recognize that I, I fall into a unique category in the Bible? God is with me. God is for me. God's favor is upon my life uniquely because the Bible says it is. I'm God's child. I'm his son. You know, my, my children come to me in a way that, you notice, I, I, at least I hope this is true, they don't come to you this way. Because they know there's a relationship that they can get something from me that you don't know them, right? There's a sense of responsibility that I have toward them as their dad, and you feel this way, you know, even though you older sons and daughters who look to parents and look to them and say, you know, I could go to my dad. I'm going to go talk to my dad about this. Maybe he can help us out. Why don't you just pull over the guy on the street over there and ask him? Why don't you just stop? Just, you know, go stand out with a placard at the corner over there and just say, uh, we're needing to repair the air conditioner, Uh, hey, hey, what's your name? Joe. Joe, look, man, I got a need in my family. You know, would you you mind helping out? None of us would do that, would we? We'd go to our dad. Why? Because we have a covenant relationship with our dad that he doesn't have with everybody. He's got it with his own. And he does take responsibility for his own. And his heart is toward his own in a certain way. So when you... Strip away the fact that God is saying, but you are a chosen generation, a race, a people for God's own possession. When you strip the Bible of making you a special people, you strip it of the unique promises that belong to you. That you can now stand and say, unlike the Amorites, God, deal with my life in this category because you are with me and you are for me. Let me cover this last point here. We miss this language in Scripture, this inclusiveness. It ignores the unique relationship that we share as the people of God. And this is where we'll end up going next week. When God makes us a people together, He gives to us an exclusive and unique relationship because we're His people. We relate to one another. Differently, A couple of thoughts I just threw in there quickly. There's unique care and responsibility for fellow family members. I want to spend a good bit of time there. In this room are a people that God has made family. We belong to the genus, the family of God. So as we tweak out some of that thought next week, it is because God has brought us in. He's called us out of darkness into his church. There's unique parameters for how we relate to one another. Because this is a book written to God's people to explain to us how we might broadcast the excellencies of him. Marriage for a Christian is reserved for another believer only. And did you know that? You read the Bible, you find out that within the household of God, God says do not marry outside of the household. Marry only another believer. Only join your life in that way to another believer. The scripture prohibits suing one another before the courts of the world. Did you know that? The scripture calls for the church to discipline the believer that's in the church, but not the unbeliever. Have you seen that dynamic in Scripture? That for those who belong to the family, there's a discipline dynamic. If there's rebellion and sin that will not be repented of, then the church is called upon to use the authority God's given the church to bring discipline into that person's life. Right? But, you know, as much as my wife is tempted to break this sometimes in public with parents who are not correctly disciplining their children, uh, it's not my business to go up to some stranger and discipline their child, right? I mean you just can't be walking through the mall and you see some kids smarting off to their parents and say, oh, excuse me, I, I'm, what's your name? Lisa? I'll take care of that. Come over here. You know, that's, that's not your place. They're not in your family. So in the same way, you know, the world does all kinds of stuff, you know, somebody's sinning this way or living that way or not glorifying God in some means and they won't change. Right? Don't, don't call the pastors and say, listen, I need you to come visit with my neighbor. Man, do you know what this guy's into? He's got this going on, that sin, and, and, and he ain't changed, and he's not interested. Is he part of the family of God? Well, no. Well, you know, We got no business in that regard. Our only business is to show them the excellency of God. But within the household of God, there's a different family relationship here. That makes us family. So the Bible says really strong stuff about parents who don't discipline their children, like you actually hate your kids. If you won't invest in their lives in a fashion that disciplines them and trains them, well, then you hate them. Well, maybe the same family dynamic is true for the church. It's a real lack of love for a church that won't discipline when discipline is needed. But well, we get that by reading the implications of these passages. Believers are called to be submitted to pastors, but the unbeliever is not. Are these are unique dynamics that come because God has a people that are precious to him and that belong to him. Let me just close with this thought from Wayne Grudem. He says, Peter says that God has bestowed on the church almost all the blessings promised to Israel in the Old Testament. The dwelling place of God is no longer the Jerusalem temple, for Christians are the new temple of God. The priesthood able to offer acceptable sacrifices to God is no longer descended from Aaron, for Christians are now the true royal priesthood with access before God's throne. God's chosen people are no longer said to be physically descended from Abraham, for Christians are now the true chosen race. The nation blessed by God is no longer the nation of Israel for Christians are now God's true holy nation. The people of Israel are no longer said to be the people of God for Christians, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are now God's people. I right, welcome to the family of God. Let's stand up together. thank you for your word. Thank you for it, it's informing us and giving us insight into the way things really are. Lord, thank you for telling us who we really are. Lord, without knowing that, it seems impossible for us to be subject to one another and husbands to love wives a certain way for us to submit to governments that are corrupt, to love people in deep, brotherly, affectionate ways, to be united together in one purpose. What it seems that vital to all that activity and all those functions is you telling us about who we are, a people that belong to you, uniquely called out, given relationship with each other. Lord, I pray in the weeks to come that will become more and more precious to us. Our eyes will be open to see here at Lakeview Christian Center in this season of our existence together as a family, what it really means to be a family to one another. What it means to be The people of God, a household. Chapter 2: A people that were, as Paul said, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to God's promises, and having no hope, feeling without God in the world. I, sure there may be some here who that's what you may feel like. You're more in touch with feeling apart, separated. Life doesn't feel like it has a whole lot of hope and and you don't even feel like God is near. Just with you, get get your eyes closed and you're trying to listen for God right now. I know you're listening to me, but just listen to God for a moment. One of the greatest things that can happen in your life is for you to feel exactly that way. Is for you to feel like I'm separated from God. Is to feel a sense of, I don't feel like I have hope in this world. One of the greatest things that could happen in your life is to feel exactly that way. I know it feels empty, and it may feel lonely, and it may feel like your life doesn't have direction. And let me tell you, many, many of us that are here this morning have felt exactly like that. What's most important when you feel that way is what will you do now? Certainly many could be sympathetic that you feel that way, but God is doing more than offering sympathy this morning. God has brought you here to include you, to call out to you, to make you part of his family, to make the separation to go away, to make that sense of alienation and being alone to go away. To make you to know the nearness of God and not a feeling like God is nowhere to be found. Here's what you can do. Right now, right in this place, right now. Pray and ask God. Ask Him. Tell Him what you want. There is an issue. There's a reason we're separated. It has to do with our decision to live life our own way. For our own goals. And sin comes as a result of that. Well, this morning confess that to God and tell him, God, I've been doing life my own way.
1: I've
0: I've sinned in many, many ways. I've sinned. And ask him to forgive you. That's why Jesus Christ was so critically necessary. He's not one choice among many. He's the only hope any of us have for our sins to be wiped away, and he will wipe them away. If you'll ask him to forgive you this morning, he'll wipe Him away right now. Ask God by faith. Say, God, forgive me of my sins. I want to come home. I want to be restored to you. I want to be reconciled to you. I don't want to feel like I'm at odds with you, and I don't want you to feel so far away from me. I want to know you, and I want you to come into my life. Pray that. And tell God that. Right now, use your own words. Put your faith and your hope in God. He will include you. The whole reason why the Bible pronounces an exclusion on us is so that we can be aware of our need to be included. If you're feeling excluded this morning, let it have its intended purpose. For you to call out to God. He wants to bring you into his family. He wants to make you one of his own. Call you by name. Give you a future and a hope. to trust him forever. I want to pray for anybody who's here this morning experiencing that. Lord, right now let their hearts call out to you. Let them by faith trust in you and hope in you that you are loving and kind and forgiving and you've done something to overcome the separation. You've sent your son to bear away our sins and to forgive us Lord, let your work be done this morning. Restore many that are here perhaps who don't really know if they know you. God, restore them. Bring them into your family by your grace. I want to leave some time for some folks to pray this morning who who might just need to come up and just get alone with God. many of you guys are in a place where you're facing something in your life That's hard. Your own version of chariots of iron are in your life. And you're intimidated. You don't know if you can fix it. You don't know if you can overcome it. You don't know if the people involved will cooperate and change. It just seems impossible. Listen to me. If you know Christ, you are not an Egyptian or an Amorite. You are a covenant member of God's household. And he has made promises to you. He will be with you. He is for you. He will accomplish things on your behalf because he's promised you that he would. Do you see uniquely that God is pronouncing to you, you. Are a special possession to me. You are my people. Joshua, you are my people. Go into that land. If you're here this morning and you're facing some chariots of iron, I want you to come do some business with God. I want you to just come kneel before God and I want you to talk to your soul. I want you to convince yourself of what the Bible says is true. God is for you. God is with you. He will not forsake you. He will not abandon you. Come and believe big things of this God. Come believe for God to be who he promised you he would be. Part of being told, you are my people, is for the purpose that we might come to him and know. God intends to treat you special. He intends to do things in your life that are undeserved, that are based in his mercy. Come and wrestle with the feelings that this is impossible. Come and believe God. If you're here this morning, go ahead and come. Matt's going to close us in a song, and I'm just going to dismiss folks after he's done. But you can stay here as long as you need to to talk to your soul about this God who is for you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the specialness of who you are to us and who we are to you chosen a race and a priesthood so that everybody here this morning can have access to you. The preacher doesn't have better access. No one's got better access. Lord, if we belong to you. Those coming this morning access equally the throne of grace. It has been thrust open by the cornerstone, the one in whom we have put our hope and our trust. So Lord, meet with us and stir our faith again to trust and hope in you. In Jesus' name.
2: We're going to sing a song this morning that might not be very familiar, but it's been sung by the church for hundreds of years. This song celebrates the fact that though Christ's presence is holy, holy, God's presence is a place where that is full of awe. In this song ask the question, how were we made sinners to stand in the presence of a holy God? How were we brought into covenant family relationship with God and it celebrates the gospel as the answer to that. Let's sing this together. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the door that we were brought into your family how are we included in this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation Lord it was your mercy but we are not a greater people a wiser people Lord you chose us because of mercy and we pray that you would go on Lord drawing to yourself those who have not yet known or those who are not yet singing with one heart and voice your redeeming grace. Bring them to this wonderful place, Lord, bring them home where together we will lift our voices, one race, one nation, to our God and Savior and praise you for mercy. Amen. God bless you.